From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set and to our last episode of 2018. Thanks for another great year. We've got big things in store for next year. But first, our conversation with Dr. Ann O'Rourke. Dr. O'Rourke earned her medical degree at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, then completed her residency in general surgery here as well. She then completed a fellowship in trauma and emergency surgery and critical care at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. After a stint in Memphis, she came back to Madison. Even with that brief dalliance down south, she calls herself a Scani lifer. She's the trauma medical director for UW Hospital, and she runs our medical student surgery clerkship, where she played a key role in designing the new forward curriculum that radically transforms the traditional medical school model. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. O'Rourke, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for uh, making the trip down the hall. Pleasure. You have a, a number of roles that you fill here in our department. I know you very well from your role as the trauma program director for the adult hospital. I'm the trauma program director for the PED side. We go to a lot of meetings together in that context. You wear a lot of hats. Tell us a little bit about kind of your whole, but just tell us maybe because you, you've you been here a while too. Been here a long time. Give us the story. Yeah, so the story, I don't know how far back you want to go on the story, but I am, although I'm originally from Tennessee, I'm a Scani lifer now. So I went to medical school here um, and was ridiculously, I think, part of the, somehow I was bringing some diversity to the class, which is hilarious, because people who don't some, know me, Some Southern I, diversity? I guess. Yeah. Regional diversity, not uh, cultural or ethnic diversity in any way. So went to school here, and then went out, to, only pretty much applied to Southern and Eastern, East Coast residencies, except for here, and just really couldn't possibly leave Dr. Rickers, and, and so stayed here for residency because I knew a good thing when I saw it. Went home to Tennessee to Memphis for my trauma and critical care fellowship and then came back and joined the faculty and have been here, I don't know, eight or nine years now. Time flies and you're getting crushed <laughs> and having fun and yeah. having fun. I've been the clerkship director for the medical student rotation for I think six years now and gradually that role as far as his medical student education has grown to being beyond just the clerkship director for third years, the director of the Department of Surgery's medical student education overall. So that encompasses um, many of our elective courses as well as the things that we offer for our fourth year students um, and can help faculty who are interested in developing new courses get courses online at the medical school. We've undergone a complete overhaul of the curriculum, and that's been a many multi-year project. And I would, I'm on the leadership, certainly not the senior leadership team at the medical school, but one of the people who helped craft the transformed curriculum. And I've been fortunate to be part of an amazing team, actually. Everybody that I've gotten to work with, it, I just, I'm in awe of the other faculty from other departments that have helped put this new curriculum together, which basically changed everything from day one of medical school till the day of graduation. We just overhauled it all at one time. For people who aren't familiar with the medical education world, the traditional model, at least for the past, you know, better part of a century, right, was like you went to medical school, you entered in the first year, you sort of spent the first year learning how like the human body worked. You spent the second year also in classrooms learning how the human body broke. 
And then there was a big shift from the second year to the third year, like you sort of walked into the hospital and you started seeing how different disciplines worked. And then by the fourth year, you sort of were tailoring your experience a little bit more towards what you were planning to go into. And the forward curriculum, the new curriculum here, upends that more or less completely. Yes. So it's certainly we're not the first medical school to do this. I would say we're sort of in the middle as far as adoption of this newer timeline. And what this does is it, it shortens the preclinical years to a year and a half. What makes it hard is for all of us who train in the traditional model, who think of med ones, twos, threes, and fours, we all know what a first year medical student does. And we've shifted that from by year and by academic calendar year to phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one encompasses the preclinical years, which is shortened to a year and a half. Mm. So they come in in the summer the way we all do, but that ends in January or December, really, of their M2 year. In the forward curriculum, it's the courses have been taken away from their traditional silos within departments. So you don't have an anatomy course and a histology course uh, in the first year when you're learning about the normal stuff. And the second year, it's not pathophysiology through GI and pulmonary. Instead, much bigger classes, multidisciplinary, and you, you might get the anatomy, the histology, the pathophysiology, the pharmacology, all of that stuff mixed together with one system. Yeah. Which, you know, just shifts the way you think and has required an unbelievable amount of cooperation and breaking down of silos on both the clinical and the basic science side of the medical school. And so that's the first year and a half. And then phase two, I would consider those students, in our minds we would think about like a med three, somebody who's just getting onto the wards for the first time. But really I would think of those students as undifferentiated students. Mm -hmm. And those are students who maybe don't know what kind of doctor they want to be yet. And that encompasses a year of time, so January of their med two year through December of their med three year. Mm -hmm. So the students are on the wards still for a year, but it's shifted forward six months in time. And in that undifferentiated student, really, and this was the course that for surgery that I helped develop, everything we're teaching them is what we think all doctors need to know. Right. So there are just certain things that we all remember that if you hadn't learned that from on your neurology clerkship, you wouldn't know it today because you certainly right. don't learn those things in a surgery residency. But you still have to you know carry them, it with right. you. You yeah. still have to know it. Yeah. You still have to know how to assess someone for suicidal ideation, even if you're not a psychiatrist. Right. You still have to know how to take care of diabetes even if you're not an endocrinologist. Yep. So those are the things you learn in your third year of medical school. Yeah, and the stuff for when, like, the air, you gotta be a on doctor. the airplane, they say, is there a doctor on board? And right. you're like calling back to your medical school <laughs> days for that heart attack. Yeah. Someone else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do I identify myself right, right now? And, and so that's phase two. Yeah. And then phase three starts, you know, halfway through your third year of medical school. And I think this is maybe the, the best part of the training transition because our students now are considered differentiated students. They know or they're pretty sure what they want to do. Mm -hmm. They may need to do a little bit of career exploration, but I think one of the hardest things for our fourth years in the traditional curriculum was, really, you only had July, August, and part of September to put together an application for residency. 
Right. If you weren't sure what you wanted to do, that might mean you were lining up an you know a sub I on two different services trying to get letters of recommendation and make up your mind and get your application finished and uploaded and right. ready to get ready for the match. Yeah. And so this shifts that back six months, which really allows some career exploration. Students who need to do away rotations, such as the you know orthopedics, plastics, some of those things, have time to do that stuff. And then it also allows them to tailor their education. There's not as many required courses. Mm-hmm. When I was a student here as a fourth year, I had four weeks of required surgery, four weeks of required medicine, eight weeks of required family practice, multiple requirements. And now our students have to do an acting internship, inpatient acting internship. They can do it in surgery, they can do it in medicine, but the core requirements of that course in whatever clinical setting are, this is what you need to learn how to do to be an intern, regardless. And then they have to do an ambulatory internship, and they have to do their their boot camp or the intern prep course at the end of the year. And then the rest of it is, we say you have to have X number of hours of patient care. Mm-hmm. By the way, we want to circle back. You need X number of credits of basic science and X number of credits in public health because we are at a school of medicine and public health. Yeah. And then, so then you so can, they can really form their own yeah, you, program. You come to us and yeah. say, I want to be a surgeon. What other courses should I take in phase three? And you say, all right, we need you to do you know, an inpatient internship on a surgical service. But here's some other things that might help you. Maybe spend some time with infectious disease. I want all the surgery, people who are interested in surgery, to do critical care. Mm-hmm. Does it have to be in the SICU? Absolutely not. It can be in the medical ICU. It can be in the neuro. Just to get Something. an ICU yeah. environment experience. Right. Maybe you need uh, to do some time on um, some other things I recommend. Cardiology. Just some other. Yeah. In fact, I tell I them. I wish I'd done radiology. That right. would, I spent a ton of time doing stuff in residency that I could have picked up in medical school. Yeah. So we kind of can give them a list or a menu of things that we think would be helpful and allow them to not do the things that really are not going to be helpful to them anymore. So there's also things that we as the Department of Surgery can offer students who are not interested in surgery. Oh, you're going into family medicine? Why don't you spend two weeks in the breast clinic with one of our experts in breast care? Yeah. You want to be a pediatrician? Maybe you should spend time on the pediatric surgery service or the pediatric urology service or pediatric ENT service. You want to be an OB-GYN? Maybe you should spend some time in urology and learn a pelvic floor and the retroperitoneum from a different group of surgeons. Yeah. Oh, you want to be ultimately a cardiologist? Why don't you go to vascular surgery for a while and learn about cardiovascular disease from that standpoint? Yeah. And so I hope that my colleagues in medicine are also recognizing what we can offer people who are going into other specialties. You want to be a gastroenterologist? Maybe you should go spend some time on colorectal surgery. Yeah, touching intestine. Yeah. yeah. That is the new curriculum, nutshell, and the part that we're right in the middle of and running our fourth iteration, I guess, is of phase two. So phase three hasn't even started yet. It will start this uh, January. Okay. We'll have our first Right, because people are rolling, moving rolling through. in, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. how do you think that it it informs your experience as, as the student clerkship director mm-hmm. to have actually, I mean, you were a medical yeah. student here. How has how it changed over time? Not just in the sort of when you take the courses, but, but the nature of surgical training, I think, and, and medical training in general, I think, you know, it's we changed. all agree has, has changed and is changing. Yeah. 
I do think people are recognizing that perhaps some of the courses we did in our preclinical years maybe are less relevant to what it means to be a successful clinician. Mm -hmm. And that they're trying to get people into clinical settings earlier and to make the basic sciences that we do learn more relevant to clinical medicine. Because I do think we're all asked to reflect back on some of the basic science and it informs our understanding of the pathophysiology of disease, particularly, I think, for surgeons, because we are so, at least I think through problems, with a structure-function relationship. And you have to understand if you are manipulating structure, how that manipulates function, either to improve it or what the consequences of your changed structure is going to be. And, and that means understanding things on the cellular level and the biochemical level. And I do think that's what separates physicians from other people in healthcare, because we have that background knowledge, we can reason through a problem and something we've never seen before. I've I've been a little leery of pulling too much of the basic science out, because I think you have to solve a problem creatively and not be bound to protocols. You have to understand, to to think through a problem creatively, you have to understand the root cause of the problem. Right. And And that's how we're going to change the way we practice going forward, right? Because if we just follow policies and protocols and don't think about the basic science. Like, we're never going to change what we do right. to make it better. Or, right. or if you see the basic science and you understand how to read the literature, you know, something else we should be teaching people to do, we see where the flaws are in the studies that are out there. Yeah. And then can maybe change what the basic science actually says, right? It's the old joke. 50% of what you learn in medical school is wrong. You just don't know what 50% Which 50%, is. yeah, right. And so, but you, again, have to be a critical thinker to be one of the people who's able to accept, and I think there was just some really good, I just read a really good article about how old clinicians are very resistant to change mm-hmm. because they have learned, this is the way I do things, and when when new technology or new literature comes to light, it takes a long time for people to adopt new ways of doing things, yeah. particularly if you've been taught that this is the pathology of this, the biology of this, it's hard to change the way you do things. Right. No, I mean, the, the data on it is crazy, right? I mean, it's 15 to 20 years from the yes. time you make a discovery to, to the time practice, practice changes. changes. Yeah. And so part of that, and I do think this new curriculum, the way they are teaching our students to work through problems, particularly in phase one, I'm hopeful will create some more nimble minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so that you maybe you are, they're learning to work through problems and find the answers themselves. Right. Um, so that they can come to conclusions as new information comes to light. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be years before we know if that works or not. If it creates that nimble mind. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I hear a lot, and again, it's sort of from people who've been around longer seem to complain about it more, but even I find myself saying, you know, oh, medical students these days, they're, they're soft. Like they've never really had to work. When I was a medical student, oh, I did everything. The doctors didn't even come to the hospital, you know, which probably is a little projection on my part. You know, I, I think I was probably less autonomous than I thought I was. Yes. But there is this complaint, probably to some degree for the better and some degree for the worse. Like when you think about the fact that medical residency and the way medical training sort of came about was under, you know, thumb of William Halstead, a notorious bipolar cocaine addict, right? And like, you get a lot of work done. But you can get a lot of work cocaine. done and you get like really, you powered through, right? You 100 hour weeks, 100 hour days, you know, like why not? 
and and I think it's it's really good that we've pulled back from the sort of craziness of that. And one concern though is maybe have we overcorrected? Are we are we taking students now and not giving them the ownership or the autonomy or the ability to sort of actually touch patients and affect patient care in the way that they did even, you know, when we were medical students not that long ago. Right. So this came up in, in the we uh, in our discussion from Grand Rounds yesterday morning people older surgeons reflecting on how much they actually physically were involved in the care of their patients drawing labs suturing clothes you know operating with the residents yeah no attendings to be seen I think this is something we're struggling with in education not just for our medical students before our, but also for our residents right this question of the EPAs and all this like giving people autonomy mm-hmm. while they're still in a supervised setting while also simultaneously adhering to strict quality standards uh, and the efficiency that we need to have to be a financially viable organization. I mean, there's a lot of conflicting priorities. Personally, the reason I'm in academics is because I think education is so important. People have to be able to, we have to train people to take care of us. And I am not going to win the Nobel Prize. My legacy, other than the patients that I've helped, is the people that I train, mm-hmm. and so it's very important to me. I just want people to be good doctors. The, the residents here all hear me say that. I just want you to be a good doctor. But that is a million times true for all of our medical students. I don't care what kind of doctor they want to be. I want them to be the best doctor. And whatever I can do on our surgery clerkship to help them someday when they're seeing a patient in hemorrhagic shock, oh, I remember learning that on my surgery clerkship even though I hated Dr. O'Rourke or whatever, you know, that, oh, I'm a, I'm a better doctor because of that. Yeah. And then I'll get back to your question about are we giving them the experience and the autonomy we need. I don't think we are. I personally think we need to give our trainees more autonomy. The electronic medical record and the documentation requirements I think have taken away some of the role of our students were able to serve on service. That's changing with the new CMS rules on how medical student documentation can be used. Right. We're now starting to be able to yeah. use medical student notes again after yeah. not being allowed to for a right. long time. Yeah. But then I don't, you, you don't want to use a student as a scribe. Right? right. So that's just total abuse. Yeah. And that is the highest scut work possible. But at least they feel like they're being useful to the team. When we protocolize everything and allow only a certain number of highly trained people to do things, for example, Foley catheters, mm-hmm. only certain, there's plenty of institutions that have Foley catheter team. Yeah. This institution has a Dopoff tube team. There, then nobody else learns how to do it. I mean, the same thing I think is true for our younger nurses on the floor. They have to call somebody special to put a peripheral IV in. Right. It's like yeah. nurses around. There's always going to be people who are better at placing peripheral IVs, but good Lord. The other people need to know how to, that's a, a skill that should be in everyone's wheelhouse. Right. Which is not in mine, by the way. You would never want me to place a peripheral <laughs> IV on you. If you need a central line or a cut down on your gal, but um, don't, I don't blow right through every, the world's best vein. I'm terrible at that. So we have to, allow people to train yeah and to fail to learn yeah and you can say that the simulated environment helps that but it only to a point because Mm -hmm. i i don't know about you but there is no mannequin that is the same as 
Flesh. I can get an IV in any mannequin on Earth. Yeah. You know, right? I mean, it's yeah. just it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, well, and the central line mannequins, they're getting better. It teaches you the steps to go through, the cognitive steps, but the the technical part of it, there's something about the way tissue is in your hands that, and and having to look somebody in the eye before you jab them with a needle. Right. And keep your cool and not be shaking so bad. Yeah. Like jab yourself with the needle because you're nervous about hurting somebody. There's some there's something to that. Right. And and you, you wanna you're gonna have to do it at some point on your own right. anyway, right? So like you can either fail in a supervised way where there's someone there who can you. help keep you out of trouble or rescue, or you or you graduate and you go out and you're doing it on your own for the very first time. Right? And like that's that's way more dangerous. Way more dangerous. Yeah. Way more dangerous. But we, you know, how do you then tell that to a patient, right? And there's the trouble, right? Like and every patient wants, wants patient. the person who's the single most expert person to do everything. I mean, do you let resident, have you ever been to the doctor or have you let a resident be the person to take care of you? Have you ever had to have that? I've had residents come in and usually they see my ID card and they're like, I'll just get the attending. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and you're right, you need to sort of think. I, I have had medical students come in. Yeah. And when I've like taken my kid to the doctor, like the medical students sometimes come in, yeah. they ask questions, and I try to sort of spoon feed them the answers to the questions I know they should be asking so they look good to their attendings, <laughs> hoping that that like buys me a chit in heaven. Yeah. I do think it's it's important I try to remember back to my own yeah. times doing that. But at the same time, like if I needed an IV and someone came in and they missed it a couple of times, would I be like, oh, that's, a, that's fine. Yeah, you know, I mean, you'd hope so, right? You'd hope you'd say, okay. But what you want is somebody who says, okay, I'm going to do this. They project the confidence mm-hmm. that they know what they're doing. Yeah. If they don't succeed, you know, what you want them. is them to go get, get someone else to help them. Right. That's what scares me mm-hmm. is when somebody doesn't know what they're doing and they keep doing it mm-hmm. and they don't go and ask for help. So how, we just need to create that environment yeah. where we're going to help. Ask for help is not a sign of weakness, which is what I often heard, you yeah. know, coming up in medicine. Yes. Right, yeah. You know, need me, call me if you need me, but need me if you call me. Right. Don't call me. Yeah. I try to say to our residents on the pediatric surgery service, never worry alone. Right? Like, that's what I want. I want yeah. them, if they're 100% confident and they, they have things under control, great. But if they're the slightest bit worried, I don't want them doing that by themselves. I just tell them that the only phone call that makes me angry is the phone call that I didn't get. Yeah, Exactly. But at the same time, there is this, right, so I don't remember, it was many years ago, and this is a well-documented sort of model of expertise, right? Yeah. The unconscious incompetent. Right. The consciously incompetent, consciously competent, and then unconsciously competent. Yeah. And, of course, the dangerous people are the unconsciously incompetent because they're not worried. Right. They don't know (laughs) what they don't know. To be worried. And heaven knows we've seen lots of examples of this in every in everyday life, you know, like yeah. those are the scary people. Right. Yeah. And, but most medical students actually are even, I think, pre that level. Mm-hmm. They're so nervous about everything that they don't they they don't know what they don't know, but they're terrified that they don't know anything. So they're even like pre they don't have enough knowledge to be cocky. Right. Most of to them. even know what competence yeah. looks like, right? And that's what we need to and model to for. To any them. medical student that's listening to this, that is not an insult. We I was that person. Like you're just terrified you don't know anything and oh, yeah. and you're afraid you're gonna hurt somebody and, and really what it does is just hurt your own confidence, right? Mm-hmm. And, 
So it's when you have a little, we all know this, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and maybe you think you know more than you know because the, you don't, you miss on the subtleties of this. You don't know what to worry about yet. Right. But, of course, the best teacher is the conscious, competent person because they're still having to think through things. Right. I tell those students I can't teach them to tie one-handed knots. I don't know how to tie I can't explain what I do with my hands anymore. Right. I can teach them to tie two-handed knots because I had to go back and break it down, but I can't, for whatever reason, I can't teach somebody to tie one-handed knot anymore. Yeah. Right. It's too... It's too ingrained. Unconscious for you. I can't yeah. do it. I think I could still teach someone to drive a stick shift, but of course nobody does that anymore. So it's <laughs> totally a skill that doesn't, it's not, it's not, it doesn't matter. Not relevant, yeah. But what, like, what is the future five years from now? I mean, so we don't even know. Like, we just started this process, but, but how, do you think that there's a way to sort of drag ourselves back to a, a balance of autonomy? And I hope so. I think, you know, this, the EPAs, and for people who, uh, don't know what EPA stands for, Entrustable Professional Activity. There are EPAs for graduating medical students as well. Which is basically like you, you demonstrate your ability to do something and you then they, they let you trusted. do more stuff. Right. So EPAs for medical students are basically like, this is what we think you should show up with. Intern, day one, you should be able to do without supervision. Yeah. And they're pretty upfront things. Like you should be able to do a history and physical without right. direct supervision when you're an intern. But one of them is very vague. It's like procedures. Oh. What, what procedures would that be? Right? Which, Could be a long list. Yeah. Or do you think interns on day one should do without supervision? But we have the same thing for presidency, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe what ends up happening is that once you, as a resident, have been whatever, you've passed whatever EPA, then you're the, you don't, you're not supervised with those things. I mean, this was like with, with resident, I mean, you, when you were a resident, after about two central lines, who ever watched you put a central line in, ever? Right. The best senior we're residents were like, yeah, you're going to do that. And, like, you sort of knew you could call them if you ran into trouble, yeah. right? But, but yes. Right. You that, were entrusted. That's been completely taken away. The number of hoops the residents have to jump through to be able to put central lines in now, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Central lines are dangerous. They can be dangerous. They have too many crickets. Yeah. I would have never dreamed of calling anyone about a third of the way through my second year for any kind of central line ever. Right. And say chest tubes, just less of that stuff. Those procedures have gone away too, right? Right. Yeah. We've sort of moved away from doing some of these things. Right. And so once those sorts of things come back, then maybe the next level of entrustment is that the residents are entrusted to supervise junior residents and medical students in those Mm -hmm. things. If, if we entrust you to do it autonomously, we ought to also then subsequently entrust you to be able to supervise it. To supervise it, to teach it. And, and, yeah. and, and maybe with that, things start backsliding back to more junior level students. I mean, what's the difference between an intern doing something and a third year medical student doing something? Nothing. Right. They have to be taught how to do it. Yeah. And they don't necessarily need an attending to teach them how to do it. Like no. maybe we sort of shift the whole window back towards sure letting the senior trainees like do like other place. stuff. No, it makes sense to me though, you know? You know, when I think about me as a medical student, yeah. the people who I learned from, the who I really paid attention to right. and saw were the residents, right? Absolutely. And the attending was this occasional presence who kind of came in and made life difficult and then hopefully left yeah, again, you know? So you get some work done. Exactly. I worry about teaching the medical students and I want to be sure that I'm doing a good job. I keep reminding myself, actually, I'm probably not 
the, what's making or breaking their ro their rotation. I'm mm -hmm. at working at a kind of a different level, thinking about questions that are not the questions they're thinking about. And like the people who they they need to emulate are the people who are one year or two years away from them in training, mm -hmm. not 15 years away from them in training. Mm -hmm. Yes. There are things, though, that don't, I don't, uh, I guess don't underestimate. I bet you could sit here and name attendings that had big influence on you as a medical student. Though. Oh, sure. The residents are so important to their day-to-day, -day, modeling what it means to be a professional, how to take care of it, how to interact with crises, how to solve problems, how to get, you know, get the work done. Yeah. But when you're deciding what you want to be growing up, you're, it's the attending. You're looking down the line. You're yeah. Down What's the line. that? What what is and, there? Oh, man, what does it look like for like them? So and so. Yeah. I hope I have a relationship with patients the way Dr. So and so does. Right. I hope I pick up on subtle clues the way so and so does. I hope I handle myself in that kind of situation as calmly. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's who you're like tr wanting to emulate. Yeah. And that's a great point. And you never know who's watching. Yeah. And I think we need to take that to heart, too, right? I mean, there are lessons to be learned by what the medical students see in us and what they feed back to us, right? You know, much as we don't want to hear, oh, you're terrible with patients or, oh, you're brusque with your trainees, right? We, we need to take that to heart and say, like, okay, I, I didn't realize I was doing it that way, but that's how it's perceived. And these people are yeah. autonomous adults, Yes. Right? right? They're not babies, right? These are like people in their yeah. 20s and 30s who like have legitimate perspectives on the world that we need to pay attention to. I, what I tell people is that if you, particularly if you choose to train in something like surgery that has such a long training path, you, you basically don't meet your adult developmental milestones, right? So, yeah. So You're what, stunted. those are. Yeah. I grew up in a kind of rural environment, so many of the people I grew up with met their adult milestones early, right? We didn't go to college, or even some of the people I went to school with didn't graduate from high school. So then you're out, like, being your adult self at 18, right? Yeah. With a job and kids and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Whereas some of those adult milestones I've never met. Like, <laughs> I never had any kids. So I've skipped out on that part yeah. of my life. I just have to live vicariously through my brothers and sisters as some sort of weird aunt. <laughs> and But you shift all that. So all your friends that you went to college with are have jobs. Right. And are making money and living their lives. And you're still in training. I had friends who retired before I got my first job. It was That's, a little weird, yeah. right? We're we're at opposite extremes. Yes, but but, but yeah. there it is. So you delay even being like in charge of your own life. You're not. You're, of course, you're in charge of your life as far as. But you're not. You're still in training. Your schedule's not your own. There's a lot of control that you give up for way longer than most people have to deal with. Right. And we do have to remember though that they're the same. If the, if we were. If we met them in any other circumstance other than they, they were our trainees, if we were met them at a dinner party or we met them, you know, I don't know. It feels like I hardly ever go out anymore. Yeah. But if you did. Some place outside you, the hospital. Right, some bizarre exactly. place. Yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't be like, oh, this person's a kid. Because they're not. Yeah. Oh, I, have, I had a medical student the other day who, like, has four children. Right. And they're all older than my kid. And I was, you know, teaching him about what an appendix looks like, but he was giving me much more important advice about, like, how do you get your kid to sleep through the night? You know, I was like, teach me. Right. Well, please. You have much to teach me, please. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming by and, and talking. We'll get you back sometime. Love it. All right. Okay. Cool. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when we sit down with Dr. Joshua Mesrich. Josh was actually the first guest on the podcast way back when. He's written a book now called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon, which is scheduled for release next month and will almost certainly hit bestseller lists. Subscribe to our podcast because you don't want to miss that one. And if you enjoyed the program, please rate us on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you downloaded the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next year. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.